some point I was like, I, I just boiled it down. I was like, what is the thing that has to happen here over and over and over again for us to make money so that we can pay everyone and grow and make more of an impact, which is the ultimate goal. What does your business need to be able to do really, really well in order to thrive? The answer to that question is your business's core competency, or one of its core competencies. Your core competency is the key capability your business has or a key promise that it makes that differentiates your business from others offering similar products or services. And knowing your core competency is a key way to build both opportunity and capacity into your business, which in turn makes it more sustainable. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how small business owners are building stronger businesses without the shoulds and supposed tos. This month, we're taking a look at how small business owners spot opportunities and choose to pursue them. Now, I know core competency sounds like a jargony management consultant phrase, and that's because it is, but it really is such a useful concept. When you know the core competencies of your business, you can invest your time, energy, and even money into the systems and structures that are going to allow you to make sure that aspect of your business works as well as it possibly can. When that aspect of your business is working as well as it possibly can, it helps to differentiate what your business does and how it serves its clients or customers, which then helps you position the business, attract your perfect fit customers, and set your prices sustainably. Let me give you an example. At What Works, our core competency is built on community building, but we actually get much more specific than that. Our core competency is actually how we create conversation to foster learning inside of our community. We do that a few ways. One, a weekly members-only newsletter. Two, our weekly events. And three, weekly check-ins and conversation starter questions. We also do it through this podcast, which even though it's free and publicly available, is still a key part of the conversations we start and nurture inside of the private network. A few years ago, we realized that while we had systems in place for scheduling events, planning community content, and producing the podcast, all of those systems were siloed, disjointed. Despite the fact that they were doing very similar jobs, these systems didn't play nicely together and they weren't managed in the same places. So we made a change. We brought together every single aspect of conversation starting that we do at What Works into a single database. Today, you can find the procedures for creating an event, managing our newsletters, or producing the podcast all in one place. Everyone on the team knows what's happening from day to day because it's all right there. Each aspect of our conversation starting content is designed to work together cohesively, as are the logistics behind each aspect. Investing in this core competency hasn't just made the business easier and more efficient to run, although that's important. It's also made our member experience better, the culture of our community stronger, and the conversations we start that much richer. But this core competency also powers how we position and market the business, as well as how our sales process works. 
In other words, our core competency gives us a big leg up on creating operational sustainability, financial sustainability, and personal and social sustainability. And that's the thing about investing in your core competency. It's not just an opportunity to make an aspect of the business work better. It's an opportunity to make the whole business more sustainable. This week, as we continue our series on opportunity, keep this idea in mind because my guest has a fantastic example of this at work. Anna Wolf is the founder of Superscript Marketing, a content marketing agency serving financial brands and professionals. Anna's story can be told through a series of identifying core competencies as opportunities. First, she identified a personal core competency and pursued that. Then she identified a new capability and core competency the agency could use to make their work more impactful. And then finally, Anna focused on an overarching core competency that's empowered her to make her company much, much stronger across the board. Anna and I talk about how she got into content marketing for the financial sector in the first place and how freelancing turned into an agency that eventually focused on productized services. We also talk about how getting obsessed with systems and processes helped her to clarify the agency's key core competency and the operational shifts that have come with it. Now, let's find out what works for Anna Wolf. Anna Wolf, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Well, I have been really, really looking forward to this conversation because even though I have known you for many years now and know quite a bit about your business, as I was preparing for this interview, I realized how little I know about your backstory and how the business actually got started. Like I know pieces of it, but I'm really excited to dive into that today and hear more about how you spotted your first opportunities and how those opportunities have evolved as your business has evolved. So why don't we start there? What was going on in your life when you noticed the opportunity to start Superscript? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because I really stumbled upon it very accidentally. I'm an accidental business owner. I'm sure you have a few of those in your audience. Yeah. So I wouldn't, it's not that I saw this great opportunity and went after it. It was, you know, I was working for a big financial services firm as the editor of their blog. And, and then I had a baby and I wanted more flexibility in my life. I just couldn't do the nine to five thing anymore. And so I figured, well, I have this skill. I'm a financial writer essentially, so I can quit and, and freelance. And hopefully that would give me some income, but also flexibility. So I did that. And then within you know a few months, I, I noticed I had more work than I could handle. It just turned out to be a really great niche. It's, it's hard for financial companies to find good financial writers. And I also have a great network in that industry. It tends to be kind of a small community. So, and then eventually uh, friends of mine, people I'd worked with in the past would call me up and say, hey, I wanna do what you did. How do I do that? And I said, well, why don't you just come take some of my work? Cause I've got too much. And, you know, lo and behold, we sort of grew into an agency. Now I'll say this for the first couple of years, I didn't even call us an agency. I called us like a collective or something mm -hmm. because I didn't even have the, I didn't really know anything about agencies and I didn't have the confidence to say that's what we are. But then uh, over time, I, you know, as we grew and brought in more writers and brought in more clients, I was like, I think we can officially call ourselves that now. <laughs> so we are a financial marketing agency. Yeah. What kind of 
educational background, work experience did you have to get to the point where you were editing a financial blog in the first place? <laughs> Nothing official. I'll say that I was a poli sci major at University of Oregon. So that really prepared me for many paths, I'll say. I I worked in nonprofit after college and really wanted to do something philanthropic or, you know, good for the world, would impact the world with my with my work. But I had student loans, like really mm -hmm. big student loans. And so a friend of mine worked at a financial service at, for, for a financial advisor in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from. And she said, you know, just come. We're always looking for assistance. Come work over here. You make good money. You can pay back your loans and then you can go back to, you know, social services or wherever it is you want to be. And so I did it and I never left. I, you know, honestly, I, I loved the work. It, I found it, I found the market and investments really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I've always been so lucky to be given amazing opportunities wherever I was. So when I, my first job working for a financial advisor, he would have, he, you know, let me do a lot of things. I was able to sort of create marketing materials. I was able to go out to the the Intel campus. He had a lot of Intel employees as clients. And I was able to go out and like give presentations on like stock options and what they should do with them. So I learned a lot in that. And I, I got registered. I was able to make trades. I just kind of kept climbing that ladder and eventually ended up in San Francisco working for, then it was Barclays Global Investors. It was eventually bought by BlackRock. And I was, I, again, given so many opportunities, I started out in sales there, and then they let me move into marketing. I'll say the one thing that really kind of made a difference in my career path was that as a salesperson, I was constantly going to the marketing team and asking them to create collateral brochures mm. or papers or decks, you know, that I could use in my sales calls. And one day the, the manager of that marketing team called me into his office and said, I, I hear maybe I should hire you because you're, you have all these ideas and you're, and I was also sort of just making my own stuff. And, and so I was able to make the jump from sales to marketing and it just kind of went on from there. So I think a lot of it was just being open to opportunity and sort of seeking out things that I kind of going down that path of things that I was interested in and writing and marketing were always very interesting to me. Yeah, that's fascinating. One thing that occurred to me is that I'm I'm curious, and maybe this isn't relevant at all. Maybe this, maybe you don't have an opinion on this, but I I, I bet you do. Is I'm I'm curious how your opportunities were different or were influenced by the fact that you were a woman in a really male dominated industry. Do you? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question actually. I mean, I I think I've always sort of noticed my experience as a woman in this industry sort of in retrospect rather than mm -hmm. feeling it like while it was happening. Again, I, I felt I felt very fortunate to for example, BlackRock has like a women's network and they're very dedicated to raising up women and I they, they have been since I worked for them and I've noticed even from the outside now looking in that they're very they they do really walk the walk there which is interesting because I do think financial services has a reputation for being you know male dominated and I I never felt held back I think something that was 
apparent to me is that I looked around at some of the women in my in my industry who had, you know, who were in uh, higher level roles, making more money, etc. And I didn't really see they were wonderful people, but I didn't really see a role model there. I didn't see a path that I wanted to go down. It just felt like it seemed like they worked a lot. You know, one of them had a couple of nannies and, you know, good for them, not for me. Like, I just knew that wasn't going to be the right path for me. I knew I was going to want more balance in my life. And I think that that made me aware at a certain point that my trajectory in that industry was going to be real short (laughs) Mm because you can't, you know, to be a, you have to be constantly like, you know, getting promoted and, and sort of moving up. And I wasn't really motivated by that. I was really motivated by the work itself. And I think that that, you know, that's a big reason why owning my own company has worked out really well for and being an agency where it's all about the work has worked out really well for me, because that means I get to kind of stay in this place where it's, it's like a meritocracy. It's like, you know, we're just judged on how well we do the work versus you know, who I'm networking with or whether mm-hmm. I'm getting a promotion this year and that that type of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned that early on, you didn't think of yourself or you didn't think of the business as an agency and that it was sort of a loose collective of your friends who were also writers and, and who had skills in this area. How did the business evolve? Can you kind of walk us through maybe the different phases of how you've thought about Superscript over the years? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first phase was I'm going to be a financial writer freelance and I'm just going to, you know, make enough money to kind of cover a babysitter every so often. And then second phase was loose collective of writer, other financial writers and, you know, me kind of handing off overflow work to other writers and taking a small cut. Uh, very small, like not enough to be considered a business. And then the third phase was I really became aware. And even after working in marketing, it's it's interesting how it took a while for me to get here. I realized that if we only wrote for clients, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the results that we were getting them. And so even though we have a lot of long term clients, and I think they're really happy with our work, it's there's something I think unsatisfying for both them and us if we don't know if what we're doing is working. And so that was how we came to bring SEO into our, you know, one as one of our services, because we found that it's, it's not every financial company, you know, some of them don't really care about SEO. I think they will more. I think they're at the beginning of the growth tra- trajectory there, but particularly for like B2C financial services companies, yes, they need to show up in search. That's what we're aiming to do. M- many times it's like a primary goal for the content that we're creating for them. And so we, you know, we brought in an SEO manager I learned a lot about SEO personally. We created some service models around that, some productized services. And that's been huge. I mean, that's like, you know, a good percentage of our business now. And it makes um, kind of selling our services really easy because it's not, it used to be, oh, we're really good financial writers. And that is hard for people to find and it kind of sells itself. But when you add on top of it, like, and we're going to prove that what we're doing is working, we're going to be able to like, you know, give you the ROI, literally, I think it's just so powerful. And it's, it's just like I said, like a lot, a lot more gratifying for everybody involved. In a minute, you'll hear Anna's thought process behind the move to learning more about SEO and making it a cornerstone of how they do what they do at Superscript. But first, a word from our What Works partners. 
What Works is brought to you by Standout Podcast Club. Are you a podcaster or aspiring podcaster who wants to create a standout show that helps to grow your business? We'd love to support you inside the Standout Podcast Club. The Standout Podcast Club is your hub for the training, coaching, and networking you need to produce a podcast that grows your small business. Inside, you'll find a complete blueprint for producing a podcast that gets noticed, attracts an audience, and helps you grow your business. Standout Podcast Club is more than an online course. It's a dynamic, community-powered coaching hub that helps us help you on every aspect of how you produce your show. If you run into a question, ask. If you're looking for feedback on an idea, tell the club. If you want to talk trends, strategy, or planning for the future, start the conversation. We want to help you use your voice and grow your business, and so do the other podcasters inside Standout Podcast Club. We also offer a roundtable discussion and Q&A call each month so that you can meet up with other podcasters, get your questions answered in real time, and learn new of-the-moment ideas for your show. Find out more about Standout Podcast Club by going to standoutpodcast.club. That's standoutpodcast.club. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. When it comes to working our plans and realizing our goals, one of the biggest challenges is isolation. Trying to do it all without the support or input of others is a drag at best and a deal breaker at worst. I'm betting you know exactly how this feels because entrepreneurship can be a lonely, isolating endeavor. And I bet you also know that your customers and clients feel the same way. They have changes they want to make, things they want to learn how to do, and ideas they want to explore but it's hard to do it on their own. And that's where Mighty Networks comes in. Mighty Networks makes it easy for you to bring your customers, fans, or they can experience the support of a community of people working on similar things. And your Mighty Network makes it easy for you to leverage your leadership, expertise, or creativity to support the people who gather with you through online courses and events. Plus, Mighty Networks gives you the tools you need to charge for membership, courses, and even bundles. Find out for yourself by setting up a Mighty Network free of charge. Go to MightyNetworks.com to get started. I want to dig into that piece a little bit more because I love how you phrase like if only we wrote if we only wrote for our clients, uh, then we couldn't put the emphasis on results. And then you jumped straight to SEO. And I would like to actually hear what that thought process was like, because it might seem obvious to you. It might even seem fairly obvious to me. But I think for a lot of people, that feels like a pretty big leap or just like, how do you even how do you discover that? Oh, that's where the opportunity is. Can you walk us through, talk us through how you figured out like, okay, it's the results piece that I want to focus on. And for results, we need to work on SEO. Yeah, it's a great question. And and I'll add to that, it's SEO. And then I think for our B2Bs, it's like inbound marketing lead mm-hmm. generation. So it's, you know, it's anything that's sort of like the, the potential result of creating content, basically. But SEO was the first was the first service that we offered beyond just content creation, beyond just writing. And it was like, it was a confluence of of events. One was that I was noticing over and over again that clients were asking 
you know, how do we measure this? Or, or, or they were specifically bringing up SEO. They were saying, you know, how do we make this rank in search? And typically they had some sort of internal marketing manager that was kind of in charge of that. But for whatever reason, that person didn't have have that handled. And then it also at the same time, I have to give a um, shout out to a friend of mine who had come she had told me she was she she had worked for an, an SEO agency and she was mm-hmm. looking for freelance work. And we had many conversations about her working with Superscript and I was trying to figure out how she could fit in. And she kept saying this thing. She was like, you're not doing the marketing. You're doing content, but you're not doing the mm. marketing. And I was like, what do you mean? We're doing content marketing. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah. she kept calling it the marketing. And I it just like clicked for me because of her. And she actually worked with us for a while and really helped us build out the the, the SEO discipline in at Superscript. And then we, we hired another SEO manager who still works with us to this day. So it wasn't my, it wasn't necessarily, I figured it out. I think it was, you know, having other people, other perspectives in the mix who were seeing what we were doing and were kind of seeing opportunities that I didn't even know you know, you don't know what you don't know. And she saw it because she had worked for an SEO agency. And she was like, there's a lot of opportunity here. And lo and behold, she was totally right. Yeah. You never give yourself enough credit, though, Anna. <laughs> you <laughs> were anyone? listening. Well, I could name some people. But no, you you were you were listening to what was being said what the conversation was what your clients were saying and put it all together and so i'm yes i'm sure a lot of credit goes to a lot of other people as well and the other voices who were in those conversations but i think you've done just such a stellar job of packaging it all up and noticing you know which way the the market was going. So speaking of which, you had mentioned that as things were evolving, you created some productized services. And I know this has been a big piece for you. Can you talk more about the productized service piece of Superscript and how that's impacted your business? Absolutely. It's my favorite thing to talk about, you know, I miss the word proselytize. It's like, yes. I've all, I will be on, you know, soapbox talking about productized services all day. I don't, I can't quite remember how I became aware of the, of the term that, and I'm blanking on his name, but I'll, if you, if in the show notes, I can give it to you. There's yeah. a, there's someone who's sort of like the, he did, he's done a lot on productized services and I did end up taking his course. I think that it became, it just really clicked for me whether I read a blog post or someone told me about it, I was like, oh, like that's, it it makes so much sense to create these packages for clients. We were so stuck in this, like, you know, either we were working hourly. So, you know, exchanging uh, money for an hour worked, which every, I think a lot of people in your Mm -hmm. audience probably know is just not scalable. And then, or we were creating like project rates for Mm -hmm. blog posts or white papers or whatever it is that we were writing. And, you know, the productized service thing was where we bring in like, okay, it's not about what we're going to create for you. Although there are deliverables involved, it's about the outcome that we're going to produce for you. So the first productized service that we created was a content strategy. It was like, the, the key thing that everybody asked us, even if they weren't necessarily looking to hire us to do this, it was something that we could put in front of them and say, 
you know, they're, they're asking like, what should we write about? What should our mm-hmm. content be about? What topics, what formats, what, you know, the, this is always the question on people's minds, even when they think they have it figured out, it's always a question for like future content. And so we put together this, we call it our master playbook and it is the upfront content strategy service. And it has, you know, a dollar amount on it. And it includes all of this research and auditing and recommendations and templates. And it's just all packaged up. And it's, again, it's kind of an easy sell because you're telling people what exactly what they're they want to have happen is going to happen at the end of this, at the end of this process, it takes four to six weeks, and you're going to have a, a editorial calendar done for you for the next six to 12 months that is like mapped if they're an SEO client it's mapped to primary and secondary keywords you know you could take this away and write it yourself internally you could hire a cheaper writer to do it if you don't want to ask superscript to do it 99% of the time they ask us to do it at that point they trust us and we've been working together and so it's been a game changer for my business because it's created number one a more strategic relationship with these clients we're starting out from this you know this sort of point of let's figure this out together rather than you know them coming to us and just sort of placing orders for content mm-hmm. which sometimes they have a strategy behind it but sometimes they don't sometimes it is like they're in and this is honestly, how my days of an editor started out. So there's no disrespect here, but like they're kind of sitting around and saying, what should we write about? And that's not going to get you where you want to go, right? Like you, especially in this noisy world, this, you know, like content heavy world we live in, you really have to like be thoughtful about Mm -hmm. what you're going to create. And so it's created this strategic relationship with them it makes for a better strategy. The stuff that we're making works. We can prove it. We also have a follow-up monthly playbook, which is metrics and uh, further content recommendations and SEO maintenance. So if you if you kind of work both of those things together, we see time and time again results, measurable results. And then it, it helps with the you know, the pricing conversation, it's not so much Mm. about, well, why does this take 10 hours? Or why does this, you know, your hourly rates high or like, none of that, it's just all gone, you know, it's just about like, well, do you want to have a plan for the year? And do you want to know that it's going to work? Because that's what the master playbook's going to do for you. And then, you know, then, like I said, it also sets us up for success as we execute all of the recommendations. Awesome. Thank you for explaining all of that. Now, everyone else is going to want to go out and create a productized service too. DM me. I will talk to you about productized services all day long. I love them. Love them. And we have a few more now too. So, but those are the main ones. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Let's see. Where do I want to go from here? I think... The, the place I want to go next is just sort of looking back on the business or even in the moment, was there a sort of tipping point where you felt like, oh man, this is working or, oh man, things are happening in a really big way and this is bigger than I thought it was going to be? <laughs> That's such a good question. So tipping point, I mean, the productized services were a massive tipping point. And I think at that point it was like, I saw exponential opportunity because I was like, there's, you know, we do this for SEO. We can do this for inbound marketing. We can do this for, you know, sales and lead generation. We can do this for whatever their goal is. I think also just, it's kind of tied in with that, but really getting obsessed with systems and processes was a huge turning point. I think 
you know, my brain is pretty messy and our business was pretty messy as a result. And once I started to get hooked into and a lot in the what works community, it's there are a lot of people who are like, into systems and processes. So that was like a a super helpful community to be a part of because we could all kind of wax poetic about, you know, our different tools. And and there are a lot of experts in there too, who I have really learned from, which is great. But I think that like kind of learning that like, it's about creating this foundation that's like automated, you know, delegated to their templates. They're like, the more that we can kind of keep sort of like you know, doing some kind of postmortem on like any, any type of thing that we do that's new and then figuring out like, okay, what could be, what could we templatize here so that it's Mm -hmm. easier next time? I think that's been, you know, it wasn't like a one tipping point, but I think that just generally making that a focus has been a a big, big uh, change for the, for, for the better for the company. This is super interesting to me because I think when most people think about opportunities, they think like something shifted in the market and we went out and we took advantage of it or I hit on this big idea and I made the most of it. And they don't think about the internal operations of their business as a source of opportunity and growth. And so I guess I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about how systems have helped you grow or scale and how that's just played out in the results you've been able to create in your own business. Yeah, I I think it's like it's almost like the opposite was happening and I realized that that was a huge challenge. That was going to be like mm. a hill we could never climb. So like at some point I was like I I just boiled it down. I was like what is the thing that has to happen here over and over and over again for us to, you know, make make money so that we can pay everyone and grow and make more of an impact, which is the, which is the ultimate goal. And so I realized that like, we weren't spending enough time. Like I'm a very, I'm a typical visionary CEO type of person. I see opportunity everywhere. I've got shiny pennies all over the street in front of me. And I'm, I will pick them all up if someone doesn't stop me. But the shiny pennies were distractions as they are. And when I when I kind of boiled it down to that, like, what is the thing that has to happen? And it has to be really solid, and it has to be scalable. And it came down to, you know, we have to deliver our content and services on time within budget, and up to the high quality standards that we that we have become known for and that we, you know, want to be known for. And if those three things are not happening, then we're we'll never grow, we'll be stuck, or we'll die. And the the thing is, like, I think I've been obsessed with systems and processes. And I have an amazing team in place now that helps with all of that to the point where we're, we do that, like, we, we kind of check those three boxes. But every time that it feels like it's happening, but there's a lot of like, you know, duck legs flapping beneath the surface Mm -hmm. to make that happen. I'm like, let's figure this out. Because I actually, like, you know, part of the reason I want to own my own business is because I don't want it to be, I don't want to be working nights and weekends. I don't, you know, like I, I did this for flexibility and to have a company that makes me feel good and not stressed out. And like, there's always, you know, something's about to break or whatever. And so I think, and this I'm, I talk about it. I'm not as good at acting on it, but it's, it's a focus for me for sure. Is like, okay, let's stop and figure out like what, what's, 
you know, what's, where's the breakdown in the system? Like, mm -hmm. why, why do we feel like we're kind of last minute working on these things or we're almost missing the deadline or, or like this is needing too many rounds of reviews, you know? And, and again, sort of post-mortem and like find ways to improve the process so that it's, it's a much more smooth delivery. And those three things are, are, it's our, it's, it's on everybody's job description now. It's like, this is the thing that has to happen. And I've kind of, I've couched the whole, the whole, there's an umbrella over the whole thing of like exceptional client service. So like, it's all mm -hmm. about like what the client is experiencing from us. But those three things have to happen for them to feel like they're getting exceptional client service. Yeah, absolutely. I love the question of what do we need to do over and over again to you know, bring in the revenue to get make sure everyone gets paid to make sure clients are getting exceptional service. I think that's a great question that people can take away from this as a way to spot the opportunity in their own internal operations, because clearly it's working out very well for you. <laughs> I think it's clarifying. It's just, yeah, and it is. It's sort of a, a rallying cry for the whole it's, you know, mm. I've tried over the years to have lofty value prop propositions and you know the missions and vision and we do have we do have that there you know the, those things exist but I found when I started just focusing on those three things all the time it was really easy for everyone to remember it versus like the four or five values that nobody on my team knows right now because we don't ever talk about them and I that's my fault probably but but I honestly think it's like maybe that was overcomplicating things for us a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's like, we, we do really good work, but it's because we do these three things consistently. And, you know, there's other stuff that we can be, which is like nice to each other and respectful and, you know, and source of information for our clients. These are all things that are kind of in my, in our values, you know, mm -hmm. that we never talk about. But the truth is like, people do that anyway. Some of that comes in in the hiring and, right. you know, just kind of making sure people are sort of a cultural fit. So the three things has been like a, again, it's been easy for people to kind of focus on, I think, for me, for me, too, you know, it keeps me focused, which I need. Yes, <laughs> same. Let's talk a little bit about your team and how your team has been an opportunity that's evolved for you as well. Because like I said, I've known you for a while. I've known you through a few different kind of iter not iterations of your team, but like I think your perspective on your team has evolved over time early on, you said you were sort of like a, collect a collective of freelancers, you moved into a more of an agency model, I think I'm probably most interested in the more recent shifts that you've made, like in the last few years around bringing people in seeing their roles differently. Can you talk us through how that evolved for you, how your perspective on your team has changed? Absolutely. So yeah, we were kind of a merry band of contractors for many years. Superscript's about to turn eight years old in March. So for at least the first six years, I operated with solely contractors. And mm -hmm. I was basically the nucleus. I was the project manager and the account manager and the salesperson and the CEO. And the I did all I did most of the business stuff. I mean, I outsourced some of it. I think I used like bookkeepers at a certain point and tried to outsource some of that stuff. But I was really like the do it playing all the roles inside the company, whereas I used contractors to get a lot of the work done. And it worked really well. I mean, I was 
again, super fortunate that I had great contractors. I mean, I think sometimes contractors can be more like mercenaries, but I, to this day, I have a couple, a few very long-term contractors who are, I think, very loyal to Superscript and represent us really well and, you know, really go above and beyond. So I've been fortunate there, um, but I did come to a realization and I, you know, I've had coaching over the years, which has helped help me come to this realization that if I wanted Superscript to grow so that we could make more impact, I would need, I would probably need people who were like 100% dedicated to Superscript as employees. And also that, you know, being able to offer employment versus a contract role would open up this whole new pool of candidates, people who Mm -hmm. need benefits and want more stability. And so I, I think I realized that, you know, two or three years ago, but it still took me at least a year to get over the mental hump of you're going to be responsible for employees now. It freaked me out. I mean, yeah, I think that's probably the last time we, you know, talked about it. I was like, I, I just personally have a hard time feeling responsible for other people, (laughs) which is weird because I'm a mom. Like I should, you know, (laughs) that should probably come more naturally to me, but I, I worry about it. It keeps me up at night. I worry that I'm going to have, I'm not going to have enough money to pay them. I'll have to let them go. I'll let them down. Like letting people down is my worry at night type of thing. And so, but I got, I got over it and I, it was a leap of faith. We now have three employees besides me. We have an operations manager. So she's doing a lot of the nucleus now. She's the HR finance, you know, helps with contracts and legal and things like that. And then we have a managing editor who's doing a lot of the account management and project management. And we're actually hiring a project manager right now because that role has grown so much. Um, that we need more help. And then we have a writer who's who's working with us as an employee as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's so it is so wonderful to just have have been able to witness all of that growth for you and all of yeah, it's, it's I'm just so happy for you. It's surprising, <laughs> isn't it? Are you surprised? No, I am not at all surprised. None of this is surprise. It is I am so glad that you are that you've made the most of this opportunity to bring it back to our theme here. But you know, yeah, I'm just I'm thrilled. I'm so thrilled for you. <laughs> That's so nice of you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So we've been talking about opportunity this whole time. What kind of opportunities are you pursuing this year? Is there anything that is sort of on your project list or on your strategic plan that you're like, this is where we're going next? Yeah. So I think, I think the thing that we've talked a lot about, but we haven't, you know, whether because of the distractions or because those sort of three core things were a little shaky, we haven't been able to spend a lot of time on impact, which is really like Mm. the thing that motivates us all. I mean, our whole team is so interested in this idea of how do we use our platform and privilege to make a change? Like whether it's, you know, changing the industry or helping, you know, certain populations of people. And so it's something we've thought about a lot over the last year and a half, but we haven't been great at executing on it. And we started to started to fill out the B Corp assessment last Mm -hmm. year, didn't make it through. So that's something that's kind of on our radar this year. But we we tabled it too, because we really, I mean, it was such a great exercise. And I think Mm -hmm. I remember you saying this when you went through it, because it brought up all this like, well, we're not doing that. We're not doing, you know, like, yes, we don't have a policy for that. We're, you know, so 
it really makes you walk the walk. It's not perform. It can't be performative at all, which I love. I, I want to be very authentic in wh- whatever we do. So we kind of tabled it and we went back to sort of like, well, what's the, what is it that we do and what kind of change can we affect? And it really, it ended up, there are a couple of things that I think are within our kind of power, I guess. One is that I think we have the ability to bring more underrepresented voices into the financial services industry, Mm -hmm. because content marketing is voices. And especially now, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of storytelling, there's a lot of, you know, bringing in people who maybe don't necessarily work for the company, or highlighting people who do work for the company who are not like the typical older white man Mm -hmm. that, that people think of when they think of financial services. And I'm a believer that, you know, if you can see it, you can be it right. Or in this case, you might see financial services tools and and platforms and things like that as being accessible or something Mm -hmm. that I that I might benefit from. But you know, if no one's been showing me someone like me and how they're, you know, benefiting from this or how they're using this tool, then I might think of it kind of as like, that's for them, you know, Mm -hmm. like, that's not for me. That's I'm going to hold that at arm's length. That's for old white men, not for me. And I, I think we can affect this change by number one, you know, focusing on the diversity of our bench of writers. And number two, encouraging and recommending that our clients bring these stories to light. And the cool thing is they're open to it. Like this is the, this is actually, I mean, you're going to probably laugh when I say this, but this is kind of an exciting time to be in financial services, which is like (laughs) the evil industry, right? But like they're, they're, whether it is performative or not, like they're finally sitting up and taking notice. And it's not just like the behemoths, um, like BlackRock, which I actually think has been very ahead of the curve on a lot of this. Uh, if you ever read about Larry Fink and, and you know, they're, they've, they've done a lot to kind of move the industry forward. But also, you know, you have the financial technology sector, so mm-hmm. fintechs, and a lot of those are kind of popping up to explicitly solve problems in these underrepresented communities. Like a friend of mine works for TrueLink, which is a debit card for people on social security. So it's aimed at elderly populations and people in recovery. It's like a whole business built around people who have been completely ignored probably by financial services forever. And that's what fintech is allowing more players into the space. And I think as this like younger generation comes in and they're so progressive um, and modern, they are they are looking to solve problems through fintech. And there are a lot of financial problems that need to be solved. So it's exciting for us, you know, you know, number one, to be we want to be the kind of preferred content marketing provider for those companies that care Mm -hmm. about those types of things. But I think also we can help influence the, you know, the the companies that have been around for a while to catch up and to Mm -hmm. try to make, you know, use their platform to, to make change. Yeah. Um, My next question might be kind of redundant, but as we start to wrap up here, Anna, what are you excited about next? That's a great question. I'm excited for the pandemic to end. Yeah. Are we allowed to go there yet? Well, I mean, you know, I think so. At the end of last year, everyone was telling me that they were excited for 2021. Like, and they were like, eyes wide open. Like, we don't know. Yeah. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen, but at least it won't be 2020. (laughs) So, yes, I think you can be excited that the pandemic will end at at some point. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah, I've already got so like something I've noticed, and I, this is not work related at all, so it might not be helpful. But like something I've noticed from this experience is that I'm really missing immersive experiences. Mm-hmm. So like being in a a dark theater watching live music with like ever you know a crowd of people around you or being in a yoga studio with other bodies moving and sweating and the you know the teacher adjusting you and it's like you can't have that right you can't be immersed you can never be sort of like taken away by like the experience it's all on video or screens and so I just really look forward to a time when we can all kind of be together again and in person. I have not heard anyone articulate it in quite that way, the immersive piece. And I love that. And it is so true. And because like, I don't miss the social things because I didn't do social things before because yeah, it's not my thing. But immersive. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That resonates. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, there are, so I think like exercise is something that can be immersive and you can do that on your own. But I, there is some, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, I'm, I am social, but I, I haven't missed that as much as I thought I would this Mm -hmm. past year, but I miss, you know, like watching a musical and crying, you know, because there's this story happening. That's like the music and the, and the, and just the, this feeling of like being in this room with other people who are like seeing the same thing you are experiencing the same thing you are, and you're all sort of feeling it together. Mm-hmm. I just think that's like irreplaceable. And I think it's part of what for me drives, you know, a little bit of depression in this yeah. whole thing, but, but I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, and I think we're all going to be so excited when we can, we can do some of those things again. Absolutely. Anna Wolf, thank you so much for sharing your story and the thought process behind taking advantage of all of those opportunities. I am so grateful. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Anna said that the driving focus of the sustainable structures and systems behind the business today is the simple imperative to deliver their content and services on time, within budget, and up to the high quality standards that they've become known for. She even described it as a rallying cry for her team. That's the power of understanding your business's core competency and using it to drive how you solve problems, how you build systems, and how you spot opportunities. The way Anna describes Superscript's core competency today is simple, but it contains all of the other work the company has done to become as effective as possible, focusing on the financial sector, pursuing SEO as a way to drive results, creating a productized service to make delivery more efficient, and building the systems and processes that ensure quality. So hopefully you've been thinking about what your business needs to do really, really well to thrive. What is your business's core competency? And how could focusing on that aspect of your business help you generate more financial, operational, and personal and social sustainability in the business? I'll leave you with those questions to consider. Find out more about Anna Wolf and Superscript Marketing at superscriptmarketing.com. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt. Our production assistants are Kristen Runvik and Lou Blazer. Get more of What Works delivered to your inbox every Thursday. Each week, I share thoughts on business building and leadership, as well as handpicked resources from around the web in my newsletter, What Works Weekly. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly to subscribe.